And a good day to you, my beloved unfuckers. We're back with another blood-boiling and raging episode of Unfucking the Republic, Mass Incarceration and the War on Drugs. It's a topic that has thankfully come into the light thanks to the profound work of several organizations, such as Prison Policy Initiative, The Sentencing Project, Innocence Project, and more. We also have our first real cross-pollination opportunity with a show that we share a producer with. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm going to tell you this right now. Do not fuck with my other shows. Bro, I'm paying you a compliment. I'm talking about Newsbeat. Nah, I hear you, but I also know you. Do not fuck with my shit. Remember, I'm the one who edits this. Yeah, so? So, you fuck with my other shows, and I will put in random fart noises all throughout your episode. Relax. You'll do no such thing, buddy boy. I'm paying the bills around here. So you'll do what You'll do what So you'll do what the fuck I say. You hear me? Okay, yeah, sure. Loud and clear. Now, where was I? Oh, that's right. Newsbeat. So I have the good fortune of working with Manny Faces, who is also the producer of Newsbeat, a social justice podcast that has been around for a few years. We'll drop links in the show notes, particularly their work around mass incarceration, which is incomparable. And we're including a special treat with authorization from the writers at Newsbeat to include a clip from one of their early shows. I think you'll be blown away. We're pulling from a number of great resources here, all of which we'll leave in the show notes. And hopefully we're doing the subject justice because as much as there's attention to the issue of mass incarceration, there's so much work to be done. So here's the rundown for today. We'll work through the history of incarceration, discuss how the system has evolved into a juggernaut in recent years, and examine efforts to untangle the mess that we've created. We'll take a quick break for an unfucking intervention. And because I firmly believe that there's an economic profit motive at the bottom of every shitpile policy, we'll talk about the economics of the carceral sphere. Stay tuned to the end of the show for listener shoutouts and a little book love and pod love where we call out other great content that we think unfuckers would dig. And this is also where we respond to some emails and social posts and follow up on some open items from prior episodes. Remember to leave us a rating and a review because it helps UNFTR show up on your platforms and continues to bring new unfuckers into the fold on a daily basis. And who doesn't love new unfuckers? If you want to join the unfucking family, make sure you sign up for our free Substack at unftr.substack.com. We're never going to charge for that. Just come on in, join the conversation. And before we begin, if you're a regular listener, you know that we go pretty deep into our topics. Yet I have a sense of almost regret after every show drops because there's always so much more to tell. And I know from correspondence with unfuckers now that this is a highly tuned audience. You know your shit. And we share a frustration that sometimes the concepts we tackle are so big that it can be paralyzing. So we try to inject humor into our shows to keep a sense of balance while wading through some pretty terrible shit. It's a way to keep our humanity while we look at the awfulness around us. It's important. But this is another one of those episodes where you kind of laugh through the tears, leave a little overwhelmed by the sheer injustice of the whole thing, and want to punch a fucking wall. So, with that, let's get to it. And unfuck mass incarceration and the war on drugs. I don't think I can make it on the outside, Andy. I've been in here most of my life. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast Just what the world needs Started a podcast Another basic white guy who Started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Open the podcast On fucking the 
It's kind of a strange concept to wrap your head around. But we've romanticized prison through movies like Shawshank, The Longest Yard, and The Great Escape. Or we casually reduce it to a punchline about soap and rape. That shit scares me. You know why I can't go to prison? Because I dropped the soap at home in a regular shower too much. They're sending you to San Quentin? Oh. What? Oh, God. Are they fucking in San Quentin? Oh. Everybody gets the dick. Meanwhile, at the Riverbend Maximum Security Prison in Nashville, Dr. King's assassin, James Earl Ray, will spend the day being raped continuously. <laughs> it's time to move past the hackneyed soap-dropping jokes and get serious about what can only be considered a violent assault on mostly black and brown people in the United States. We're going to bounce around the timeline in this episode, including a trip all the way back to Prohibition, and even earlier than that. But first, let's review some key stats. According to the most recently published stats from the Prison Policy Initiative, as of March of 2020, there are still more than 2.2 million people incarcerated in America, with a little more than half in state prisons. Of the 631,000 people locked up in local jails, 470,000 haven't been convicted of a crime, meaning they're being held pre-trial. So much for innocent until proven guilty. Federal prisons and jails hold nearly a quarter of a million people, the majority of which are there on drug offenses. And while youth incarceration has been on the decline, an estimated 40,000 young people are locked up. And due to harsh sentencing laws, the number of people serving life sentences has more than tripled since the 1980s. Consider this in the land of the free. More than 10 million people are admitted to jail each year, and the number of people on parole or probation is double the incarcerated population, 4.5 million. All of this adds up to some pretty stunning shit. The U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world, even surpassing countries that we condemn for violence and lawlessness, such as El Salvador, or those we criticize for having a poor human rights record, such as China. One of the clear and obvious themes that unfuckers are keenly aware of is the stark racial disparity. People of color make up 67% of prison population, but only 37% of the U.S. population. So much fucking winning. We're linking a study from Brookings in the show notes that shows how poverty, race, and incarceration are interconnected. For many people who end up in prison, securing employment was difficult even prior to being incarcerated. Quote, of the prisoners we studied, only 49% of prime age men were employed two full calendar years prior to incarceration. After leaving prison, only 55% reported earning any income. The same study looked at segregation's impact, saying prisoners were disproportionately likely to have grown up in socially isolated and segregated neighborhoods with high rates of child poverty in predominantly black or American Indian neighborhoods. One thing to keep in mind on fuckers is that defending criminals is a slippery slope, and these details are usually met with a shrug and a suggestion that perhaps if these people would stop committing so much crime or just pull themselves up by the bootstraps, we wouldn't have to lock them up. Sigh. We'll get there, too. And to crawl to freedom through 500 yards of shit-smelling foulness I can't even imagine. Or maybe I just don't want to. So how the loving fuck did we get to this place in the land of the free? Looks like it's story time, unfuckers. Grab a blanket and grab a beer. Let's jump to the middle of our timeline and head to 1972. 
Disco is all the rage. G. Gordon Liddy, who just passed away last week, by the way, was arrested for the Watergate burglary. NASA launched the space shuttle program, and everyone everywhere was dressing like absolute shit. Sunday Bloody Sunday happened in Ireland. The Godfather was released. Don McLean's American Pie debuted, and Atari hit the shelves with Pong. For our purposes today, it was the first year that violent crime in the United States began to decline after a sharp and steady incline over the prior 20 years. In 1972, the prison population was around 350,000 as compared to the 2.2 million people today. Now, one of the reasons for the peak during the prior years was arguably the result of baby boomers being 18 to 25 years old, the prime adolescent years of criminal agitation also mixed with civil unrest and protests during the Vietnam era. But by the mid to late 1970s, conscription had formally ended, the boomers were more worried about getting jobs than getting high, and violent crime was precipitously declining. As Michelle Alexander notes in her landmark book, The New Jim Crow, a National Advisory Commission on Criminal Justice Standards and Goals recommended as early as 1973 that, get this, no new institutions for adults should be built and existing institutions for juveniles should be closed. Think about that. We actually hit a point in the early 70s when we were literally thinking of closing prisons. Now, sociologists and criminologists have come to realize that punitive punishments and long-term sentences had little to no positive impact on crime statistics and that rehabilitation and treatment were more appropriate measures for all but the most violent criminals. Of course, criminologists such as Caesar Beccaria, author of On Crimes and Punishments, had been writing about this since the dawn of the Enlightenment. Now, we'll come to Beccaria toward the end of the show to further illustrate how these theories and writings were twisted over centuries into the perverted forms of criminal justice that we suffer under today. Fun, right? So, in the early 1970s, despite a difficult economy, violent crime was falling. Not only in the United States, but around the globe. The numbers would spike and decline in fits and starts over the next few years before hitting a peak in the early 90s. Given these circumstances, it was somewhat surprising that President Reagan declared an official war on drugs in 1982, only two years into his first term. Surprising also because America didn't really have a drug problem in 1982. But that was about to change. Now, before we get into the Reagan and Clinton bullshit on the war on drugs and tough-on-crime nonsense, I'd like to bring in the Newsbeat crew to bring us way back to the 1930s. With their permission, we're going to play an extended clip of one of their earliest podcasts covering the war on drugs to talk about the original fuckface responsible for making Mary Jane reefer, dope, grass, acapulco, gold, the strange, the kind, illegal here in these United States. Ah, man. That's some heavy shit, man. In 1939, Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer, walked on stage in a hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Um, she wasn't even allowed to walk through the front door uh, because she was African-American. She had to go through this. They made her go through the service elevator. And that night, for the first time, she sang a song. It's a song lots of your listeners will know. It's called Strange Fruit. Southern trees bear strange fruit. It's a song against lynching. Blood on the leaves. It imagines, it, the, the song describes and blood at the, root. the bodies of African-American men. 
Black bodies swinging Hanging from trees in the south In the southern breeze She describes that as the Strange fruit hanging The strange fruit of the south From the poplar trees Her, her goddaughter Lorraine Feather said to me You've got to understand how challenging this was For an African-American woman to stand up in front of a white audience And sing a song against lynching was unheard of And that night Billie Holiday received a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, who were the federal agency in charge of enforcing the drug laws. And they basically said, stop singing this song. And if you want to understand where the war on drugs begins and why it continues, I think this moment in American history is, is really important. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees By the same who bringing in the poppy seeds Yet they blame you, call it an atrocity You a scapegoat, you ain't make the policies See the bigger picture The richer getting richer You slanging on the corner But who's the real slinger and who's the real picture? Who you point the finger Think you know the story But really just the gist of Let that one linger It's not just unfortunate That the victims of this war are disproportionate It's not some innocent mistake How they enforcing it then Treat the symptom, but never the cause of it. Then they got the gall to say slavery was so long ago. We need to move on so we can be level C. But if the human being who wrote the law is racist, what you think that law itself gonna be? Yeah, that's fucking newsbeat. I'll link them in the show notes. Look them up. Unbelievable show. So you may or may not know the douche nozzle behind all of this, but he was a dude named Harry Anslinger who was in charge of the task force under prohibition. Well, typical fuckhead bureaucrat was so afraid that his power was about to be legislated out of existence with the end of prohibition that he literally created a propaganda campaign around the evils of marijuana and convinced a terrified Congress that this funky shit was causing white women to sleep with black men and inspiring that devil music sung by Billie Holiday. He was so successful in these efforts because he hated black people so much and was desperate to hold on to his power that what was considered the most benign drug on the planet became the subject of law enforcement's vitriol for nearly a hundred years. Let's talk about the modern middle passage. In order to properly describe the extent to which our criminal justice system is inherently and overwhelmingly racist, we have to learn to speak about it with a new language. The current language, inculcated into the population by the government and corporate media over several decades, includes phrases such as tough on crime, zero tolerance, and three strikes. This type of rhetoric has been delivered repeatedly and enthusiastically since President Ronald Reagan declared the official start to the war on drugs in 82. Thirty-some-odd years and a billion episodes of Law & Order later, and we're all fluent in the language of narcotics. The only good thing to come out of this was Miami Vice. God, I love that fucking show. You're such a tool. Unfortunately, most of us have turned a blind eye to mass incarceration of young black people in America during this time. Most of us shrugged it off. Most of us have failed to comprehend the rise of the prison industrial complex. Most of us, but not all of us. In The New Jim Crow, Alexander speaks to both the sociological and institutional aspects of racism in the American legal system. Since its publication in 2010, her book has been gradually galvanizing members of the black community around the concept of incarceration as a new form of slavery. 
And because the efforts of outspoken leaders such as Dr. Cornell West, tireless advocacy from grassroots drug and prison reform groups, and a comprehensive analysis provided by Alexander, the nation finally began to speak about incarceration with a new language. Crack, rock, and shit. Well, how you think the crack rock gets into the country? We don't own any planes. We don't own no ships. But we are not the people who are flying and floating that shit in here. Ask enough people from a black neighborhood where crack came from, it won't take long for someone to tell you it was the CIA. This point has been hotly debated for years, but the fact remains that the period during which crack cocaine first began flooding the streets of American cities coincides precisely with the start of CIA operations in Central America, specifically Nicaragua. In the early 1980s, guerrilla forces in Nicaragua were suddenly flushed with cash from American sources, cash used to purchase American weapons in their fight against Sandinistas, the Marxist government that aligned itself with Cuba. In 1982, the U.S. Attorney General drafted a Memorandum of Understanding to the CIA establishing the United States' interest in overthrowing the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. The same year, the Reagan administration declared the war on drugs. But crack cocaine had yet to reach the streets. It would take another three years for crack to begin appearing in the black neighborhoods. Crack derived from cocaine, funneled from Nicaragua. Call it a conspiracy or incredible coincidence, but the timing is irrefutable. We have a new business proposition to you, Barry. You bring your American guns to Colombia, deliver our cocaine here to the Contras. The Contras take it by fishing boats to Miami. And everybody's happy. It's for the war effort, Mr. Seal. If you want to fall down the CIA rabbit hole on this one, research the work of journalist Gary Webb, most notably his piece Dark Alliance, written for the San Jose Mercury News. His work was among the first to connect the dots of covert CIA activity to fund the Contras and essentially clear the way to move narcotics across the border in an elaborate chain of cash, mercenaries, drugs, and weapons. Webb, who died by suicide in 2004, was initially the toast of the town in journalism circles until he was maligned by both the CIA and corporate media. I've included a link in the notes to a great Intercept article that breaks down the controversy, but the bottom line is Webb's reporting stands the test of time. The article, by the way, illustrates the lengths that the established media went to to discredit Webb instead of actually following through on his reporting and bringing it to light even further. Had they committed the same amount of resources to finding the truth and holding the government accountable instead of wasting them trying to embarrass a writer that wasn't in their fucking mainstream country club, maybe some of this could have been prevented. If Woody had gone right to the police, this would never have happened. So despite the downward trend of violent crime and no evidence yet of a rampant drug problem, the Reagan administration increased anti-drug funding for the FBI, Department of Defense, and the Drug Enforcement Administration tenfold between 1980 and 1984, almost the exact size of the funding decrease to federal drug treatment, rehabilitation, and education programs. Cocaine hit the streets from Central America in 1985 in the form of crack and was deemed an epidemic by the media by 1986. And by the end of 86, the country had already adopted mandatory minimum sentencing requirements for drug-related felonies. In less than five years, we fully manufactured a crisis in our cities, and federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies were given incentives in the form of military arsenals and cash to increase the number of arrests. These police departments were subtly competing for cash grants, assault weapons, and even air power. If you want to learn more about this, we covered this in our episode, Freeze, It's the Military. 
The government's sudden change of course and willingness to fund anything related to drug crimes also created an opportunity for private industry, which was all too anxious to jump into the fray. In 1983, Corrections Corporation of America, the first privately held prison corporation, was formed. Despite the historically low prison population, the government's drug war prompted private industry to suddenly jump into the incarceration game. Now, we talked about CCA and their adorable new company name and logo in a prior episode, so unfuckers are familiar with this part of the story as well. Bottom line is the private prison lobby in America has pressured lawmakers over the years to maintain harsh minimum sentencing requirements as corporations don't have a financial incentive to encourage rehabilitation. As far as they're concerned, the only useful felon is one who is incarcerated, not reformed. Reagan's war saw a clean population getting hooked on drugs. And during this so-called war, rehabilitation was replaced with recidivism. Treatment was abandoned in favor of solitary confinement. All the while, his administration was ramping up anti-drug propaganda, including infamous messages like these from his skeleton-in-a-wig wife, Nancy. The drug dealers need to know that we want them out of our schools, neighborhoods, and our lives. And the only way to do that is to take the customers away from the product, say no to drugs, and say yes to life. Fuck you, Nancy. I guess the White House ghosts at your fucking seances didn't whisper in your ear that it was your husband that brought crack to our cities. <sighs> to say the black community bore the brunt of this war is an understatement. Dig this. More black American men are in the prison system today than there were enslaved people prior to the Civil War. Present the statistics any way you please. There's no pretty picture to paint. Black America is once again in chains. I don't want it in schools. I don't want it told to children. That's an infamia. In my city, we would keep the traffic in the dark, people, the college. All right, we're going to break up the heavy shit and pause briefly for an unfucking intervention. When we return, we'll catch back up on the timeline and talk policing, crime stats, stop and frisk, incarceration economics, and why we are the way we are as a nation. If you all have your coffee, I'd like you to settle in. Thank you all for attending this very special unfucking intervention. Today, we have Congressman Matt Gates with us. Um, sir, who is that with you today? Uh, who? Uh, him? <laughs> That's Nestor. <laughs> I am Gloriolio. I'm not sure it's appropriate for a child to attend an unfucking intervention. <laughs> he said fucking. <laughs> Dude, wait outside. Okay, please, sir, you have the microphone. Uh, I'm Matt Gates. He said gay. <laughs> Shut up, ass munch. I said Gates. Same thing. <laughs> I'll beat your ass. Gentlemen, please. Mr. Gates, continue. <clears throat> uh, I'm Matt. <laughs> and I need to be unfucked. I'm Matt. Uh, after accusing Democrats of being weak on immigration, I was called a racist. So I bought a, uh, <laughs> adopted but not really, uh, a Spanish kid to show I wasn't a racist. <laughs> He's so smooth. Uh, <laughs> I defended the rioters at the Capitol, uh, pretended to be in business with my dad so I could run for Congress. And uh, I recently got caught paying an underage girl to travel with me. 
She's hot. She lives in the basement with me now. <laughs> Dude, shut up. Oh, and when I was calling out Hunter Biden. Present. Oh, hey, Hunter. Mr. Biden, you'll have to wait your turn. Uh, well, when I was calling out Hunter Biden, I was showing naked pictures to other people in Congress. <laughs> Black and white and brown and Asian and short and tall and gay and straight. Mr. Cuomo, please, you'll have your turn as well. Well, Mr. Gates, you've given Mr. Biden and Mr. Cuomo and all of us a lot to chew on. Uh, <laughs> chew on this. And we're back. So we talked about how violent crime started to decline in the 1970s to such an extent that policymakers were recommending the closure of youth facilities and suggesting no new facilities ever be built in the U.S. Well, crime would ebb and flow over the next 20 years, though never really exceeding that height in the 1970s. Then around 1992, the figures started dropping again, precipitously, and they never looked back. Basically, the arc you're looking at is that violent crime rose for years after World War II. It spiked in the early 70s, it ebbed and flowed, stayed around that same spike in 92, and went all the way down. So this phenomenon has a lot of different theories, none of which fully explain why this happened, and they range from elimination of leaded gasoline, the passage of Roe v. Wade, tough crime policies, increase in gun ownership, technological advancements like smartphones, air conditioning, and so on. Of course, explanations related to policy like Roe v. Wade or crime bills or behavioral like gun ownership ignore the fact that violent crime didn't just drop here in the U.S. It happened in lockstep across the world. And if you've never heard the Roe v. Wade argument, essentially a couple of economists theorized that all of the bad seeds that would have committed violent crime as adolescents were aborted. So I don't even know where to begin with that, but... Maybe leaded gas was causing people to rape and murder one another, or air conditioning kept us all inside more and prevented us from murdering people in a fit of prickly heat rage. Or maybe, as my buddy Bobby from Brooklyn, whom you met in our propaganda episode, says, there's too much good weed and free porn. Whatever the reason, despite the drop in crime, the United States went into overdrive and started putting black and brown people in prison like it was going out of style. Thankfully, the stop-and-frisk tactics that frothing scumbag and national disgrace Rudy Mint Julepani implemented in New York have finally fallen out of fashion. But the damage was done. Each year when it was in force, hundreds of thousands of stop-and-frisk acts were performed in black neighborhoods. They were rarely, if ever, conducted in white neighborhoods, office complexes, or college campuses. Of course, had they conducted them on, oh, I don't know, Wall Street. I take quaaludes 10 to 15 times a day for my back pain, Adderall to stay focused. Xanax to take the edge off, pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and morphine, well, because it's awesome. But no, that didn't happen. Cops didn't hang outside of Wall Street firms and shake brokers down for the coke in their pockets. They positioned themselves overwhelmingly in black neighborhoods. And despite a minuscule number of successful hits on a population that was routinely harassed on the way to work, catching the bus, on their way to a barbecue, whatever, the overwhelming majority of those who were arrested during these really fucking unconstitutional searches were black. Now, I'm no mathematician, but logic would dictate that if you only stop and search people in black neighborhoods, then when you do find drugs on someone, the chances are the person is going to be black. Why, oh, why were these neighborhoods targeted? 
Well, a New York Daily News article in 2013 published allegations from NYPD officer Pedro Serrano, who taped and recorded notes of his supervisor, Deputy Inspector Christopher McCormick, telling him to target, quote, male blacks. And I told you at roll call, and I have no problem to tell you this, male blacks, 14 to 21, end fucking quote. Shocking, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Not really. Of course, this has been under investigation since then, but last March in 2020, the NYPD finally admitted that they got hold of Serrano's evidence and destroyed it. Once a young African-American or Latino is swept up into the system, they're met with a barrage of obstacles. From a holding cell, they're paired with a public defender or perhaps an attorney with a conscience working pro bono to work through a plea deal. And these are the lucky ones, as a staggering number of accused felons make it all the way to sentencing in front of a judge without ever having spoken to an attorney. It's a far cry from what happens on TV. And time is of the essence, as the attorney is typically carrying an offer from the DA that is set to expire quickly. Whether they go free rarely comes up. They're in the system now. The only question is, how long? And risking an appearance in front of a jury means risking a much longer sentence. And the cold reality is that most of these men and women won't exactly find a jury of their peers who are sympathetic. Fun fact! Did you know that nullification is a juror's prerogative? What I mean is that, as a juror, you don't actually have to render a verdict based on the law. What? Yeah. Most of white America's understanding of what is just and what is legal generally comes from watching television crime shows and movies. That's why most people have the impression that the sole responsibility of a juror is to deliver a verdict based upon legal facts and that his or her personal feelings of fairness and justice cannot be considered. This is false. Patently false. If you manage to get by voir dire, the process of questioning jurors to sit for a particular trial, and you're fortunate enough to be selected, you can hang a jury without ever having to explain why. Jurors such as this are referred to as stealth jurors. Cool, right? The whole thing where the judge warns the jury sternly that their responsibility is to decide who made the better legal argument is fucking bullshit. If it was real, then only lawyers would be on a jury. Mind blown yet? Of course, serving on a jury is tedious, time-consuming, and even potentially financially detrimental. There's nothing romantic about the inner workings of our legal system, no matter how glorified it is on television. Moreover, the chance of being picked for a jury that involves drug possession charges is extremely remote because so many caught in the system are never even told it's an option. But a juror that goes this route would be committing the greatest legal act of civil disobedience ever, in my opinion. Anywho, the confusing whirlwind of circumstances between being frisked by law enforcement officials and accepting a plea deal is just the start, a piece of the legacy from Reagan's war on drugs. But if Ronald Reagan was responsible for putting so many black people behind bars, it was Bill Clinton who was most responsible for keeping them there. In an effort to make Democrats appear tough on crime, the Clinton administration institutionalized punitive measures outside of the system, such as lifelong bans on some forms of welfare, including access to food stamps, government jobs, and public housing. Parolees, now branded as felons for life, were suddenly unable to leave their district while being forbidden from returning home accessing food, and gaining employment in the public sector. So as you can imagine, throughout the 90s, recidivism spiked and parolees came face-to-face -face with President Clinton's most punitive anti-crime measures, the three-strikes rule and mandatory minimums. 
Under Clinton, life sentences were mandated for any third-time felon or felon convicted of multiple counts regardless of the nature or severity of the crime. Mandatory minimum sentences for even the lowest-level drug offenders were implemented as outrage finally began to creep into American consciousness. Black churches and organizations were up in arms. Some judges even resigned. Michelle Alexander even recounts the story in her book of a notoriously harsh judge who actually wept when forced to hand down a 10-year sentence for, quote, what appeared to be a minor mistake in judgment in having given a ride to a drug dealer for a meeting with an undercover agent. Beyond the practical hindrances of felony faces in attempting to re-enter society, there's an emotional burden and stigma that is carried forever, a burden that extends to the family as well. And even those who are released carry with them the shame of having been on the inside and painful memories that accompany incarceration. Horrifically, more than 70,000 prisoners are raped every year. Additionally, tens of thousands of prisoners are locked in solitary confinement at any given time in the United States, a punishment usually employed by totalitarian regimes that was all but outlawed in the U.S. prior to Reagan's war and the emergence of the modern prison industrial complex. We finally reached a point, thank God, where solitary confinement might become a thing of the past. Like New York's recent changes to the penal system are pretty encouraging. We're finally doing away with marijuana possession charges, expunging past records related to them, and doing away with solitary. But for so many, the damage is done. And at least there's a glimmer of hope that we'll move past this horrific treatment that causes more harm than good. New York is actually late to the party as usual, and one has to wonder if we'd even be here if the Prince of Darkness, Andrew Cuomo, wasn't embroiled in so many scandals. Black and white and brown and Asian and short. Oh, for the love of everything, shut the fuck up. As I offer some final thoughts and some actual good news on the whole, I did promise that I'd go way back and discuss the economics of incarceration and the origins of the modern theory on criminology. So I'm going to keep it brief, but it'll give me an opportunity to work in a healthy fuck Milton Friedman in context. And before I do, one thing that always strikes me is how people talk about, well, these people, these so-called people, commit crime at a higher rate than white people. I'll just say it for what it is. No statistic from any research bears that out. Black people, white people, brown people, people of all types of color, background, ethnicity, race, religion, whatever. Everyone commits crime at the same level here in the United States. Everyone. So when you look at these disproportionate figures, you have to understand that the system is targeting these people and putting them behind bars at a rate that is staggeringly higher than white populations face. Period. End of story. The numbers simply bear it out. So when people talk to you about, well, I think we're past systemic racism, you have this to stand on, to say to them, it's just not true, because this is our system, and this is America. So as you know from other shows, I love looking at our founding and current events as sort of bookends in our ongoing experiment as America. It's fascinating how so much of what we're working through today was in play during the Enlightenment era when the U.S. was founded. And one of the principal theorists of the time, who had an enormous impact on other great philosophers of the time, was Caesar Beccaria, a Milanese aristocrat who was a renowned criminologist, jurist, philosopher, and politician. And he was 28 when he published On Crimes and Punishments, of which Voltaire himself said, I should limit myself to hope that we all and often reread this great work by this lover of humanity. You toil on behalf of reason and humanity, 
both of which have been quashed for so long. You revive those two sisters, beaten for over 1,600 years. So they were thinking about really big stuff that we're still talking about today. In On Crimes and Punishment, Bakaria advocated for the, quote, abolition of the death penalty, for measured and proportional punishments, and for the end of torture, and for equal treatment regardless of nobility or wealth. See, he understood that the length and severity of punishment had zero impact as a deterrent, but that punishment should be, quoting again, the minimum possible in the given circumstances proportionate to the crime and determined by the law. Now, it wasn't just Voltaire who was inspired by this work. From Adam Smith to Thomas Jefferson, Beccaria's work held tremendous influence in intellectual circles across the globe. Of course, it was the Enlightenment, so Beccaria wasn't the only influential thinker of the time. Further down the ideological spectrum and more towards the middle was Jeremy Bentham, an English philosopher, jurist, social reformer, who is regarded as the founder of modern utilitarianism. Bentham's middle ground is important because he picked up on many of Beccaria's thoughts with respect to government's role in punitive affairs. Where he differed from his Italian colleague was in economic matters, where he maintained that the government had little to no role to play. So hang on to this concept for a moment as we introduce the real asshat of the Enlightenment, a French fucker named Pierre-Paul Le Mercier de la Riviere. Le Mercier was the hardline natural order philosopher who had the opportunity to put his theories into practice as the ruler of Martinique, where he ruled with a heavy hand and developed his theories around how best to keep enslaved people in line. Like I said, a total prick. But he had a huge impact on other thinkers, particularly those in the Chicago School of Economics a couple of centuries later, who would cherry-pick a bit from each philosopher to create their own political and economic reality known today as neoliberalism. Can you feel the fuck Milton Friedman coming on? See what I did there? Huh? I brought this shit all the way back, all the way back to my main man Milton, who along with his colleague Gary Becker, revived aspects from the three men to develop their system. And here's how they did it. They borrowed the idea from Beccaria that the state existed to preserve and protect the natural order of things, but ignored his humane approach. They picked up on Bentham's idea that the state was effective in the carceral and punitive sphere, but should leave economics and policy alone. And they pounced on Le Mercier's idea that punishment should be severe and pretty much the only reason a government exists. So this bizarre alchemy gave us neoliberalism and put the United States on a steady march to extremism in the penal realm. Hopefully, as we continue walking this path together on fuckers, the role of the Chicago School in perverting our systems of justice, economics, and foreign affairs continues to be painfully evident. And hopefully it explains why I end the show the way I do, with a kiss to our friend Uncle Milton. In fact, a few of you have even taken to signing off your emails with our signature as well. So in the spirit of unfucking the Republic, and as we move to our conclusion, let's take a deep breath, clear our minds, and say it together. <clears throat> On the count of three. One, two, three. Fuck Milton Friedman. <sighs> Final thoughts on fuckers before we get to show notes, pod love, and book love. All too often we're focused on the experiences of incarcerated black and brown males in this country. But make no mistake... The stats are identical when it comes to women in the United States as well. Another great episode done by the Newsbeat crew speaks to the treatment of black women in the country and how the Me Too movement had a huge blind spot when it comes to rape and abuse among women in prison. I also wanted to mention that there is hope. In fact, while it takes a painful amount of time, and these years can never be replaced, 
the movement to end mass incarceration is finally starting to turn the tide. A wave of progressive district attorneys from DA George Gascon in LA, Rachel Rollins in Boston, and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia are ushering in swift change. Of course, they're being met with tremendous resistance, as one would expect, but their elections reflect the will of the people. Across the country, states are beginning to do away with the treacherous system of cash bail. Marijuana is being decriminalized and records are being expunged. If you want to get involved with organizations that have truly been doing the work, donate your time or your money or learn how to advocate on their behalf to Congress. We'll drop links to these organizations we've mentioned throughout the episode in the show notes. Like I said in the beginning, there's so much more to this story, and we'll try to get there in future episodes. But hopefully this helps put the struggle into perspective as we move forward as a nation and try to heal the wounds that date back to our founding. Justice isn't blind. Democrats are just as guilty as Republicans for everything we just described. And fuck Milton Friedman. Here endeth the lesson. Time for some show notes, baby. First off, we have a special shout out to Janice J for the $50. And she asked us in our sexiest voice to say, what's up, girl? Plus an excellent suggestion for a future episode on patriotism. Now, I don't know how sexy I can get here, but JJ, baby, you don't got to pay me for this kind of pod love. I'm all yours. You just got to ask. You all done there? Barry, extremely white? Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. El Bacho, Allison ASP, Cameron L, Andrew F, Linda C, Tony E, Dawn M. Thank you all for supporting the show by buying us coffee at unftrpod.com. You guys are the best. Want to say hey to the Celtic Apache on Instagram, Andrew F, Thea M, and Thomas S, and P Slippery on Twitter. Thank you for the five-star reviews from Adage Huck Fuckaby, Floralbert, and Crombo Mike. Obviously, I'm mispronouncing all of those things, but you know who you are, and thank you so much for those reviews. The ratings are amazing. The reviews are super important for getting us up the ladder. I want to come back to Allison ASP for a second for sending along a great topic suggestion involving the courts. And Stan G for listening with your fiancé. It's kind of romantic. Fuck you, Netflix. Stan's like, yo, baby, want to unfuck the Republican Jew? Lara E. I'm not Robert Evans. He's actually a real badass journalist. I'm just Max. And let me say that signing off your email with fuck Milton Friedman might have, just might have, put a tear in my eye. And thank you for torturing your family members by making them listen. This is the loyalty we demand. From Linda C., I love you guys. Please tell me how an overheated economy, per assholes like Larry Summers, might affect me, a blue-collar worker in our current economy. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Linda, I love it. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the stimulus, the infrastructure plan, some more economic mumbo-jumbo in the very near future because I, I do think it's important, and we will get to that exact question. Thank you. Oh, and I'm fuckers. This is a note from John Kane regarding our last episode. You might remember that I called out John Kane, who's a good friend of mine. Uh, he is a, a native talk show host, does amazing work on his podcast, Let's Talk Native. Please try to check that out. And here is his message verbatim so that everybody can align with what he's saying about the term Indians. He says, the term is finally getting proper pushback. First, it's clearly a misnomer. In spite of the bogus claim that Columbus was making some kind of God reference, the fact is that this lost buffoon thought he reached the easternmost islands of the Indies, commonly known by Europeans as the East Indies. 
Rather than correct the mistake, they would just call these islands the West Indies and go on calling native people of this hemisphere Indians for another 500 fucking years. The word exists, I get it, but no one calls us that anymore. No form application or modern document uses this racial identifier. It's Native American, Indigenous, First Nation, or Native people, or just Native. Yes, there's still the American Indian Movement, Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the National Congress of the American Indian. But there's also the United Negro College Fund and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. But no one advances the term Negro or colored people anymore. As someone fighting white schools still insisting on calling themselves Indians, taking on this misnomer is part of the challenge. Oh, and by the way, many Native peoples have begun dropping Indians from their officially recognized names. The Seneca Nation is not only dropping Indians from the Seneca Nation of Indians, they're actually transitioning to Onondawaka or Onondawaga, their real names in their own language. Thank you, John Kane, for that clarification. This is why we do this. I love you for reaching out to us and for supporting the show. Now, in terms of pod love on fuckers, the only show that we're featuring this week is Newsbeat. So go to usnewsbeat.com or search for Newsbeat in your pod app. And on their website, if you're interested in learning more about mass incarceration, they have this massive compendium of articles that they've produced based on the shows that they put out there. So you can listen to the episodes, but you can also look at this phenomenally well-researched piece that sources dozens and dozens of people that are you know important in this movement. Uh, so check out their website, search for them in your pod app, definitely download them and follow them. Really, really great team. In terms of book love, if you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod, you'll find new drops. We have Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, which talks about the Billie Holiday connection with uh, Harry Anslinger and the origins of uh, the war on drugs. We have The New Jim Crow, obviously, by Michelle Alexander. And we have also Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. The show is hosted by Tony Clifton and distributed on the wings of fireflies. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. Send us your comments, your questions, your tired, your poor, your suggestions to UNFTRpod at Gmail or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at UNFTR.substack.com to keep the conversation going between releases.